Welcome to the Consulting Lifestyle Podcast. I am your host, Diogen Tirandekura. On this show, you will discover the realities, the successes and the struggles of business management and information technology consultants in the fast-moving B2B world. So stay tuned if you want to know more about what it takes to have a consulting lifestyle. My guest today is Robert Sikora from the company Sikora Consulting. And uh, Robert is a uh, consultant in the field of uh, leadership, in the field of uh, organization development uh, and employee engagement, uh, amongst others. He is also the author of a book called Grab the Helm. And uh, that book is actually about navigating your journey through life and steer your way towards a meaningful purpose uh, we will be talking about that we'll be talking about uh, finding your uh, finding your life purpose and combining it with your career we'll be talking about uh, organizational organizational progress uh, leadership and uh, all the, the methodologies and the models that uh, uh, Robert has developed and used to help his clients. Uh, this is a, uh, this was a great interview and uh, the particularity as well is that uh, Robert was uh, in a uh, in uh, sunny Hawaii, <laughs> while uh, I was in uh, snowy Montreal when we were doing the interview. So uh, without further ado, let's start with uh, Robert Sikora. Hello and uh, welcome to the Consulting Lifestyle Podcast to uh, Robert Sikora. Robert, how are you? I'm doing well, sir. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm doing uh, doing great. Uh, it's the start of the year. You know, we are always uh, pumped at the start of the year. We have many goals um, and uh, we are not yet completely accountable to them. So it's still still the period in which we are excited. But let's see. Let's see in a few weeks. <laughs> um, by the way, I hope I have uh, pronounced your, na your last name uh, properly. Uh, okay. Okay, great. Then um, uh, maybe you can start by... Uh, Uh, introducing uh, your uh, yourself and uh, your career story to the uh, to the audience, uh, Robert. Then we can dive into the subject. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, my uh, my career, um, a majority of my career was spent in human resources. So I uh, I did my master's degree in human resources and worked for organizations like Pfizer Pharmaceutical, um, Carlson Companies, uh, Eaton Corporation, uh, Cargill, and I even spent some time with Pillsbury. Uh, for a while. So I was very familiar with, you know, large organizations working in the corporate space, working in the human resources space. Uh, prior to that, though, and, and it kind of coincides with uh, the concept of the book, uh, Grab the Helm, which is living life, uh, you know, with purpose and, and taking command uh, with purpose. And all my life, I've always had a sense of what it is that I wanted to do. Um, I was, you know, I don't know if I was unique that way or not. Some people are that way. Other people are, you know, maybe not so much. And early on in, in life, I wanted to be a pilot, actually. I'm, I'm here physically right now in Hawaii, which is a little ironic. I have clients out here and I was doing some studying out here as well. And uh, back when I was 19, I was flying planes at that time and um, mm. really wanted to get into that side uh, of things and was looking to go maybe naval air uh, and whatnot. But um, But in that time, I was doing a lot of work with youth, and I was doing a lot of work, uh, youth development work, uh, recreational therapy. And so uh, I started down that path. It was a shift. It was one of those whys, you know. And uh, for certain reasons, I decided not to go down the, the, the flying route. 
and decided to go down this path of working with, uh, with in recreational therapy. So I did that for quite a few years, I actually did that all the way through my undergraduate uh, degrees, uh, sociology and communication. I actually did half my business degree and was working in that development space. And so when I went to finish my MBA at the University of Minnesota, after going to St. Cloud State as an undergrad, uh, the admissions folks there said, you know, why MBA? Why not go into the human resources field because of your background? And at the time, I only really knew what personnel was. <laughs> and I was like, why would I go to personnel? And then I realized there was a whole lot more to it. And then the University of Minnesota has top HR programs. So um, very successful career in that space. But uh, during my time in human resources, you start to, you know, learn what your talents are, what your, pa- what your passion is. Uh, and then from there, the purpose became even more clear. And for me, it was working on the organizational and leadership and the employee engagement, the organizational development side of the business. And so what does organization development mean? What is, uh, you know, employee engagement and, and team effectiveness and leadership development? That was the side that I really got into. And so um, back in uh, 2009, um, with the great uh, recession and the housing crash and all that, I decided to leave a corporate life at that time and went independent uh, because I knew there were so many small to mid-sized organizations that needed the benefit of what it is that I had learned over those you know, 20 years in, in working in that space. And so started to refine and develop models that really worked you know, for, for, for organizations in that space for them to rapidly uh, adjust and have agility and be resilient uh, and you know, kind of reposition themselves. And um, what I found was, is working with that size organization, it actually worked with the big organizations too. I've got a client uh, out of uh, Basel, Switzerland right now that I'm going to kick off a year and a half long program with, and they've got you know tens of thousands of employees, but I've also got mm-hmm. you know a small firm in Wisconsin I'm kicking off a program with that only has 350. Uh, but you know the, the you know the, the the work is the same. It's just kind of the size, scope, and complexity of it. And um, so it's been a it's been a wonderful journey uh, since um, since going independent. I uh, did my doctorate uh, in organization development at St. Thomas. So uh, and did my research on on personality styles and trust. So it's uh, been something we've been able to uh, uh, apply directly again with our clients. We're actually looking to re, uh, re- repeat that. Uh, that trust study, uh, we're, we're, we're combining trust and engagement and styles, and we're going out to organizations uh, and helping them look at it from a team perspective and, and how that builds a team. So you, that's kind of the journey. The, you did the PhD before or after the deciding to become independent? So I went independent uh, in 2009, and it was kind of an interesting um, experience. I knew I wanted to get my doctorate at some point, And way back when I was a recreational therapist, I had to go and get supervised supervisorial training. Uh, and I went to the University of St. Thomas and I went through this really cool program. And I, and I remember walking through the building going, this would be a really, really cool place to do a doctorate, right? You know, I kind of thought to myself, just, it's just, it just has a mystique to it. And uh, sure enough, years later, I'm in, an, uh, I'm in this building going to an organization development network event. And so I walk out of this event, meeting people and I come out and I look up, I'm like, oh, this is that building I was in how many ever years ago? And I went over to the information folks. I said, I said, where's the department uh, that manages organization development? And they said, oh, it's fourth floor in this building. I went up there, I talked with the, uh, the individuals and I found out they were going through the application interview process right then. Uh, and they do it in two year cycles. So they said, if you don't do it now, you got to wait two years. And I immediately <laughs> put my uh, hat in the rank, got interviewed and uh, 
that June or that May, I should say, I was uh, part of the, uh, the the sixth cohort of the uh, for that program. So it's actually a doctorate in education. So it's in EED. Um, and so it's an applied, uh, uh, you know, academic applied type of a program. Um, good research based, but definitely has a more of an applied sense versus uh, the PhD, which is a li- typically a little bit more research uh, and publication focused. This is more application focused. And uh, yeah, it was a five-year program uh, with with all the work we did on the dissertation side and uh, uh, definitely enhanced. I like learning and applying at the same time. I did the same yep. thing in my master's program as well. My entire master's program and even my undergraduate, I worked full time all the way through all of those programs. Yeah, okay, that's uh, that's a great uh, that, that that's a great career path, and uh, I think you you had that in your in your head in yourself. You knew that you had that in yourself when you mostly when you did the recreational therapy work with uh, with youth people. You knew that you had it in in, in you. Um, then you 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 still did some corporate uh, some corporate work, and then the, the the crisis made you think, okay, let's maybe let's go for what I am called for, and you have. Uh, you have written a book uh, called uh, "Grab the Helm." Does that does does this book um, reflect about your your path, or is it a uh, more uh, generic uh, advice that you provide uh, further to your experiences and all the people and organizations that you met? Uh? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I there was there was there was probably three or four books that have been, you know, on the shelf, not written yet, um, that we were looking at the. The eight factors of engagement, which we're known for, you know, as, as most actionable engagement uh, program out there, um, and the trust research that I had done, along with the organizational version of the leading from the helm model that we use, those were all books that we were going to write. And uh, a couple years ago, uh, we were reflecting on it and being able to really look at it through the individual lens. We find is is where things really make the difference, right? When change happens at the individual level, and we said, why don't we? Why don't we take the individual perspective of this and work through it? And that's what we did. And so the book is based on, um, it's got a wonderful outline of information, uh, but then it gets into a fable, right? So each chapter has three characters that you work through. And at the end of each chapter, there's activities then that the individual is able to do for themselves in applying what they just learned. And we're, we've received just tremendous feedback and we've even run cohorts through programs with it already. And they just love the, the the approach and the outline of it. So to answer your question, um, the the book obviously was written um, with myself and other crew members. We call ourselves crew members coming together and and and, um, and, and sharing ideas and thoughts. And so you'll see um, any examples that are in the book or, or stories that are being told are taken from personal examples from different crew members or people that we know. Um, you know, there's, there's one gentleman, I remember a, a, a director of, of, of finance that I worked with and, and there's no question that he, uh, is a, the, the, one of the characters in the book is a bit of a shadow of that individual. My brother, Tom, uh, there's no question. If you look at his life, there's, um, there's, there's echoings of that, uh, Mary Rose, who, uh, helped to write the book. Um, you know, she's in a, in a master's program in, in, in theater. And so she has that side and, it was able to bring in her experiences. So they're all real to life experiences that have been put together in a, in a fable. So yeah, there's, there's essences of truth as far as for ourselves, but, um, uh, but yeah, not all the examples are mine personally, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, 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 it's a shared experience. 
Okay, oh, that's uh, th- th- that's very interesting. Now, maybe if we want to um, go back in time a little bit uh, towards the the moment in which you you decided to to uh, to go independent, because in the audience there are a, a lot of people are either just started as a, as consultant or they are thinking, ah, how can I uh, how can I go from uh, being a, a, an employee to becoming a uh, an independent contractor? So. What? How did you prepare? What went through, through your mind to say, okay, I'll do it right now? Because during a crisis, it's usually when we are happy to have a job. So yes, yeah, <laughs> no, no, great point. I, it's it's interesting. I've always had a, a bit of a, a blessing in that you know it's kind of that vision of what's next. My my mind is always thinking about different scenarios and where we can go. So when I'm working in organizations and business, that's always applying. I'm always thinking that way and. Um, I do remember <laughs> as an undergraduate that I, as an undergraduate that I knew I was going to want to do a doctorate at some point. And so that piece, you know, obviously came, um, still had to get through the master's program, but the same was true with independent work. Um, probably when I was working at Eaton Corporation, um, managing, uh, their fluid power group worldwide, uh, there was a time that it just kind of hit me that, you know, the work that I'm doing has su- such wonderful application that could have such an impact with other businesses. Eaton was, is an incredible organization at bringing other organizations into the fold and helping to assimilate that and working through that transition. And I just, I just saw uh, the, the opportunity to be consultative. Interesting before that though, um, when I was at Carlson companies, I was responsible for uh, managing all of employee engagement worldwide. So 175,000 employees. I did it for like, I don't know, eight years. Um, but at some point in the middle there, one of my coworkers said, you realize that you could be out independent, making like five times as much as you are right now, if you were, if, you know, because you're an expert in this area now. And I was like, I had no clue, but you know, I was a single father. I'd been a single father. I was raising my son and so stability and things like that are such an important piece, having benefits, having a set salary and all of that. So you get, you know, you've got to think through, you know, obviously all aspects of your life from a whole systems perspective to say, is this going to work? Um, so when I was um, when I was with Eaton, my son at that point had was uh, um, had just accepted a scholarship to the academy down in Florida for tennis, uh, the same place that uh, Andre Agassi played and and others. And um, oh. and so I, I started realizing. I mean, he was a young man who basically kind of had control of what he was going to do. He was going to go off to college and and get a job, which he has done and gone on to do. So. I was freeing up to be able to do that. There was not as much dependency on me. So that that's a huge piece. If you're if you're married and you have a spouse who has another income and all of that, then it becomes a little bit more easy that way. I mean, people you know have to look at their situation and and, and determine how that's going to work. But um, so uh, it, it's it, and it's an interesting point too because since I have gone independent, I can't tell you how many people. <laughs> within business have asked me, hey, could you help help me do what you did? Because what you got going on looks really cool. Um, <laughs> and I've got myself and a couple other uh, folks who um, who have gone independent, who I partner with. We call ourselves the crew uh, because we're all independents, but we work uh, with each other. So having that network is an important springboard to be able to come to uh, when you're looking to do it as well. But, uh, but yeah, we've worked with others and helped them through that transition, because it is an important transition that has a lot of different factors uh, that you need to consider. So, so the vision was there when I was in corporate. Um, but it's interesting that you mentioned because right now it's good to have a job. Well, that was true back in 2008, 2009 during the Great Recession as well. And I chose intentionally to leave corporate life at that point 
uh, because I did have enough uh, stability outside um, and there was enough available at that time with the resources to get a business started. Um, but it really was about the network at that point. I had you know, 20 years of experience. I had an amazing network in the human resources space. I had executives in human resources that worked at these different firms who always said, hey, if you go independent, you know, come to us because we have projects that we need you to work on. The other important thing was, is I had so many vendors that I worked with, right, over those years. I mean, I had a $22 million learning and development budget, you know, when I was at Cardiel. I had a $4 million one when I was at Eaton. Um, and I can't remember what it was when I was at Carlson, but I mean, that's, you know, some pretty decent money. And so when you're managing and working with the vendor relationships, and that's why I always tell folks, you know, be kind to those vendors, you know, because, you know, it's, it's funny how they just, they, you know, they take it out of the chin so often and um, you never know when you're going to be, you know, talking to them and asking them for help type of thing. And, and that's what happened with me is my vendors actually came to me and said, would you please work with us when we're working with our clients? Because you've been there, you've had the experience of, of applying what we do in a way that has huge impact. And so I found myself to be incredibly busy, especially in those first three to four years, just managing my network. And so I took about six weeks, actually, after leaving to make sure that I had all my business stuff put together. I had my um, website, I had all the materials, and I had the very focused, here's the two to three things that I do really well. You know, even though I knew I did 18 things really well, but here are the two to three things and be very focused on that. And then I went out and basically just, you know, started to socialize uh, that experience in, in managing those networks. And it, it definitely took care of itself uh, very quickly. But um, uh, yeah, that's where that's where we've left off. The, the big thing then is, you know, for our organization is, is taking these models and making these models work within uh, the organizations that we're working with. Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, great learning point for the audience. That's really uh, thinking about your overall uh, personal situation to assess if it is the, the the right moment to do it. But then also making sure that you have a healthy network uh, when you uh, before even you start focus on a few core um, services that you can uh, that you can provide and then uh, reach out. So uh, no, I think it's great. Um, now I'm, I'm curious about because you, you started as an independent contractor and you mentioned already a few times the crew, the crew. So have you created a team uh, in between uh, what, what has happened? Because you're not completely alone now. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and I've never been completely alone. I, okay. you know, one of the things I know true, true about my personality style is that I love to collaborate. So when I was in the corporate space, I was a um, independent you know, indiv individual contributor. They call it. You know, I managed large, you know, uh, functions. I had employees under me at different times. But as an individual contributor, you're constantly managing through influence, and you're constantly working with others and their pieces of the business. That is true where I'm at as well. So as soon as I went independent, you know, you look at, you know, who's my who's my informal board of directors. I mean, who are those people that inner circle that you're surrounding yourself with? Um, that you can use as a sounding board that's willing to give you feedback, uh, the tough feedback. You know, they're not, they're just not there to say yes to you there, but they're there to challenge you and everything else like that. So having people surround you um, that have different personalities, different folks from different diversity backgrounds, uh, different business industry, whatever the case might be, you want that board of directors. Uh, and I've always just called them my crew. It's my inner circle. And then you have the expanded circle and you, you continue to manage this and in, in, in these relationships. It's interesting because this is, you know, kind of the stuff that's also outlined in the, in the book because, um, 
you know, going back to my decision to go independent, my decision to go independent happened because a, a door opened and or a window opened, however you want to look at it metaphorically. And that's, you know, what the book says those those windows of opportunity present themselves sometimes when you're not expecting it. But are you ready and agile and you mindful enough? Or are you living in the present enough to be able to recognize and go, whoa, wait a second. I've been thinking about this. I've been planning about this. But all of a sudden, everything seems in place. Wow, this is the time to jump through. I, I wasn't expecting that in you know 2009. I still was about three years away from it. But you know what? The timing was right. And I stepped through it. And, and, and the same you know, is, is true here. So um, you know, those opportunities as they present themselves, your talent. But the other thing we talk about is your inner circle, your crew is, is what the book refers it as and being very intentional about who do I surround myself with? Am I surrounding myself with just people that think like me and have exactly the same perspective? Well, that's, it's, that's reassuring. And, you know, it's very, um, you know, homogeneous in your thinking, but is it diverse enough? You know, are you really exposing yourself to that? And so having that inner circle. So because of that, in the relationship I've developed with the crew, um, you know, I've got work that's more than I can do, right? So you bring somebody in and say, hey, can you help with this? And you start to partner. And one of the things I find, you talked about business to business. Yeah, I, I, I sell my services to organizations mostly. I think, you know, there's probably 3% of my business that's sent, sent to, to individuals. So everything is sold to business. However, some of the businesses I sell to are my, are my competitors, so I've developed such a network of people that do the kind of work that I do that they realize it's like, oh, when it comes to this, Robert and his crew and Robert and what he does is so far superior. And it's really not their sweet spot anyhow. So I've got a client or a, a partner you know, out of, out, of, uh, out of Boise, Idaho, and he's working with a large firm that really needed help around employee engagement. Well, his stuff is in the leadership development space. And he's like, yeah, he could figure it out and make it work. But he's like, you know what? Let's just partner with Sephora. So he partnered with us, brought us in. We've been running these programs from them and just blowing it out of the water for him. It is bringing him a wonderful income that he wasn't expecting. It's enhancing his service delivery for that client. The client loves him. He loves everything. They love everything. And they see it. You know, we're part of a, you know, you're, you're part of a network. You're working together. I've got another buddy of mine who's got an amazing business he's he's the number one global lead in, in what he does um mm-hmm. and uh, but it's again it's he's a competitor uh in a way and every single time he flips me a client we turn it into something amazing and he keeps on saying he says i need to flip you more of my clients you know but there's <laughs> there's kind of this protective thing that we sometimes have but when you have the rules of engagement when you build trust these are all things that can happen and everybody wins in those situations we always say the size of the pie isn't finite, you know, it actually, it, it grows, right? And, and we're able to, we're able to grow that together. And so um, having, um, you know, having uh, partners or crew members, uh, uh, trusted partners that you can have uh, is, is an important piece. So, um, yeah, so we, we sell directly to organizations, obviously, what we do, uh, we partner with the human resources function a lot of the time, uh, but we work, you know, directly with business leaders as well. But interestingly enough, I, you know, because you're in, you're in networks, you go to associations and network events and different conferences and stuff, you see the same people, right? Um, I, we always find it's better to, you know, work with each other than to try to, uh, you know, compete, you know, uh, too heavily with one another. There's always friendly competition, but it's good to collaborate. Yeah, 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 I agree. I think it's a little bit where the economy is going as well. 
um, today um, you offer or sell uh, some core services. Uh, is that I heard the word program? So yeah. can you maybe mention what you what you offer uh, today? Right. So at our core, um, the the leading from the helm model is 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 our service delivery. If you want to look at it that way. So as as a as a business leader, um, I had a business leader out in in in, in California who looked and said one of the things they appreciate was that they saw the model and they and they were able to resonate with the model the resonate the, the model itself leading from the helm has strategy your mission your vision your value you know those that's your true north it has leadership leadership development and yourself as leader it has the values piece and your the culture the culture of your organization and how that aligns to strategy um teams how do how teams work effectively with one another and the whole team dynamic And then at its foundation is the employee, the employee engagement, and we've got the eight factors of engagement. Each of these spokes has a model of itself. We have a leadership model, a cultural model, a team's model, and then we have an engagement model. The left side of the helm is all around organizational performance. How does work processes, services impact your customer, which then impacts your financials and your results, which allows you to grow and sustain your organization. So that holistic model is our go-to-market strategy. But what's interesting is usually clients, you they come to us with a need that's based on one or two of those. But what they find is that when they start to use us, like, oh, this is systems theory. If I'm over here working on process, that has an impact on teams, individuals, and leadership as well. Or if I'm working on culture, it has an impact in these other areas. So we have the benefit of having the systems theory. And what we find is that our clients, you know, they get in on one or two of the segments, but then they realize that they're applying all of them. And that allows for that further work. So, so our big programs or our big products as a result of this is we do we do strategy development, but we do a lot of leadership development, a lot of different forms of leadership. The Discover the Leader Within program is a huge program that individuals can even go through to really understand themselves as leader because we believe everyone has leadership within them. Obviously, the purposeful culture of trust model is huge. And our Without, without question, our kind of our crown jewel is the eight factors of engagement. Scientifically, the most balanced, actionable, leading indicator engagement model. So if people are doing their annual engagement programs or their benchmark where they're benchmarking themselves against best places to work or whatever. This is a leading indicator model for, for engagement that we do pulses on a quarterly basis. And they're all actionable. And they allow for the employee to take the lead. It's an employee-led culture of continuous engagement. And what we find is literally within six to nine, nine to 12 months, it helps to quite literally transform the organization and it becomes this employee led. And it's just amazing the case studies that we've had. So the eight factors is, is the big program. And then of course, we've got the book right now, the Grab the Helm Pro, you know, which includes a program, uh, organizations implement the Grab the Helm program. And it's a way of mm -hmm. having a cohort type program working through it. So Yeah, we've got a lot of different things we do. We'll re-engineer performance management, talent management. There's all sorts of human resources stuff that we'll do. A lot of assessments, you know, talent acquisition type assessments if you're trying to find the right hire. So there's a lot of things. Like I said, there's 18 things that we do, but what are those two to three things that you do really well? Yeah. And that's organizational transformation, leadership development, team effectiveness, and the employee engagement. Mm. Uh, maybe um, maybe for the audience and a bit uh, as well for myself, I have heard a lot the word uh, even when I was an employee uh, employee engagement. Uh, I have that image that an employee engagement is an employee that is cheering on 
anything that the company is doing, but <laughs> I might not be very precise. So can you maybe um, kind of explain what, what, what is meant there and, and something you, you say as well about the engagement metric, if you have yeah. kind of one metric that you could uh, mention? Yeah. Yeah. So um, for, for me, um, for me, employee engagement uh, truly is, you know, what ignites uh, an individual, you know, at their core. And when we look at employee engagement, um, there's many models out there uh, that, that I used for, for years. And back in 2016, we asked ourselves the question, how, how balanced, right? How balanced and actionable is that particular model? And those models. And so we did this massive research data, uh, metadata analysis. And what we found was, is that there was, there was significant gaps. I mean, I have to admit, I mean, I've been a, I've been a uh, proponent of the Gallup Q12 for years, um, but there was significant gaps in that. And so um, what we found was, is that there are eight um, main core factors of engagement. One is accountability. One is purpose, right? Recognition. Um, you know, you've got um, resources, you've got development, um, you've got um, agility, um, you've got care, and you've got trust, right? And what we found was that purpose and trust are the two uh, factors of the eight factors that drive the model more than anything else. And that's been proven now through research uh, in what we've done. But here's what's also interesting. A lot of the engagement models you see out there are what we call lagging indicators. They're employee experience. And now employee experience is fine. It's okay that you ask, you know, somebody, you know, is this a place that you would recommend to others to work at and things like that? That's all great. But how actionable is that at that point? You've measured that, but okay, now what do I do with that? We've measured everything at the leading indicator, meaning based on the statement that we use at the individual, the team, and the organization level, we know what it is that is driving that engagement. And we get to ask the question, so what can you do as an individual and what can you do as a team? to help drive that? And then what can the organization do to support you and, and bring that forward? So, um, so yeah, you do speak in terms of actively engaged employees. Are the, those are the advocates, right? Those are the ones that are taking the mission and the vision. They're taking it as their own and they're, they're driving things forward. And then I, and then I have what I call my mushy metals. You know, those are the folks that are, you know, they're average engaged, they're doing their job. They're, you know, they're, 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 they're punching the time clock. They're, they're getting things done and they're just, they're just kind of rolling along for it. And we call them steady eddies. And there's there's nothing wrong with a steady eddy. You'd like to have the actively engaged, but you know, those folks are there and um, different things kind of bring them up and down. But then you got folks that are kind of on the fringe. And those are the ones you got because all it takes is a little bit of a um, economic downturn or something within the organization, and then they drop. And so those actively disengaged folks are the folks that you kind of worry about because they're a lot of times they're just not in the right place. You know, mm -hmm. they're kind of tied to a paycheck. They're, they're just, just, they're just kind of, you know, going along and they actually kind of drag down the other employees as well. Right. Because it's just, it just, it, you know, it, you want it, you want folks on the, if, you know, there's all of those classic examples of, you know, people that are on the team, right. You're on the bus, you want everybody working together in the same direction. So, so we're, what we do is we help folks in those situations really leverage and take advantage of that actively engaged group really. And then, so when you spend 80% of your time, 80% of your time should be spent on that, that power play, right? You shouldn't be spending 80% of your time on the actively disengaged. With those folks, yeah. you're helping them either move up or move into a better role because it's just not a good fit for them. And that has changed and transformed leadership's thinking quite a bit. Um, but the fact that the model truly measures the leading indicator and no other model on the planet right now does that in a balanced way scientifically. 
So we know we've got, you know, a, a differentiator. The cool thing is, is we've made it, we built it for the business at the individual and uh, team and organizational level. But a few years ago, uh, some community-based programs said, is there a way you could do the eight factors and not have it be business focused? And so we did a, a version of it that's inward focused, outward focused, and upward focused. So we have three statements that are non-business and we do uh, work like right now, we've got uh, different high schools we go in and the, and, the, and, the, uh, and, the, and the juniors and the seniors use it as a way of measuring their engagement as it re- relates to life in school and things like that. We've got some other community examples as well. So um, yeah, so, so it's, got a, it's got a nice feel to it uh, and it has a lot of different applications as well. Yeah, that is uh, that is amazing. That is great, great explanation. And uh, you also mentioned something about leadership. You 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 think that everybody has leadership uh, in her or himself. What do you uh, mean? Because sometimes I I hear ah oh, this person is an exceptional leader. So the leadership is like reserved for a few. <laughs> yeah, I mean leadership takes on obviously a lot of different forms, right? We talk about leadership and then the management continuum. Management is you know getting things done, managing people, managing projects checking boxes. Leadership, um, there's all sorts of different, you know, styles of leadership. Um, And one of the things that we talk about is the fact that um, our number one jobs as individuals within organizations, right, um, is to be um, an exceptional leader. And what that means is, is we're either building trust or we're breaking it down. So when we're in the organization, there's only one of two ways with that. We're either helping to build trust up, which is I consider to be one of the most valued currencies in any organization is trust. Um, we're either working to build that up or we're doing things that are breaking it down. So as a leader in the organization, our consistency around what we say, what we do, um, how we provide service, um, how we support one another, um, there's all sorts of different ways in which we exhibit leadership. The other piece to that that's important, though, is people have to realize and respect the fact there's different styles of leadership as well. So when I look at when I look at leadership from a style standpoint, um, there are some leaders that are that are change leaders, right? They like to you know they like to work through change. Other ones are process leaders. They like to you know work things through a process. Um, Results based leadership, right? Um, or visionary leadership, or being an advocate for others, or relationship based, and then this trust based. But at the core of leadership is self leadership. Well, how, what am I doing to manage myself? What am I doing to build trust with others, either build it or break it down? And what am I doing to develop, you know, more solidified relationships? From there, uh, just there's so many other things that happen. And so what we do is we help individuals understand their unique leadership style, right? The fact that we all have different style and that gets into personality and traits. You know, you've got your, you know, you've got your drivers, you've got your analyzers, you've got your inspirers, and you've got your supporters. And you've got different personality styles and honoring the fact that we have all of those within us, but we have a preference for those. And we have to honor the fact that we need all of them to be effective within a team and within an organization. We don't want everybody thinking and seeing things the same way. We want to have diversity of thought and perspective. So the Discover the Leader Within program starts with self. It's understanding your own styles, your personality, how that works with others, how I can build or how I maybe breaking down trust and not even knowing it. So bringing that you know, realization to the forefront. And then what do I do to build relationships and build trust within the culture of the organization? So we all have the ability to do that. When, when employees feel that empowerment of realizing, wow, you know, this toxic non-trust environment that I thought was just, you know, suffocating me is something I actually have 
control over and I can help to build trust within this culture. And I get to call it out when I see things that are inconsistent or I think that we're behaving in a way that's breaking down trust. We can call it out and say, you know what? It feels like we're breaking trust, you know, breaking down trust. And you know, what can we do to change the narrative? Um, and I've seen organizations transform themselves literally in a very short period of time. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was actually the question I had in my head, like uh, how long can it take? Because it's such, such deep changes at the personal and organizational levels. I was thinking it could take some years, but... Uh... Well, trust trust in itself is the of all the eight factors of engagement. I'm just looking over at my screen here over here because it's nice to have the models for, uh, to kind of look at. Mm -hmm. Trust is the one that's the hardest and the longest to rebuild, right? Um, what we find is recognition actually is one of the easiest factors of engagement to, to do because you can show gratitude to anybody at any time when it's authentic and meaningful. And it gives people an endorphin rush. And what we found through the brain research, it actually gives you uh, a stronger rush than it gives them. So you, you actually gain more benefit from being grateful to others than the, the people receiving it. It's, it's kind of a powerful thing. But trust does take time. It, it take, it's very easy to break down, but it takes a long time to build up. But what we find is that when there's an intention there and people start working through it, um, you start to you, you start to build on it. You know, it's not going to just jump up to a high level, but the building piece is there. And so what we found was is that leaving things naturally on their own, if you're trying to you know see how culture can transform, we talk about three to five years. It takes about three to five years for that to naturally just kind of happen. But when you get very intentional about it, what we find is that within nine months, you start to sh see a shift, a, free, a very significant shift within the first nine months. But trust is based on reinforcement, right? And so, you know, making sure that in the consistency. So what we say is that, yeah, you may see a shift within the first nine months, but it takes about 15 to 18 months where you start to go, okay, yep. The pattern is repeating itself, right? We're into another year now, and it wasn't just the flavor of the month. You know, we, you know, it isn't something that has gone by the wayside. But people are actually consistent with what they're doing. So, right around the 15 to 18 month mark, you start to realize that wow, things are really different here, and how things are are are, are, ha are operating. So, um, and it depends upon you know the players as well. Sometimes it's just there's certain people on the team or on the organization that just aren't a good fit. We got to make sure we're taking care of that as well. Mm -hmm. Great, great. And uh, one of the one of the last questions I would have is uh, related to the fact that, uh, as you say, it can take quite some months to um, realize the, the the value or for the customers to realize the value of what you have provided uh, for you as a as a consultant. So one subject that is big for consultants is pricing, not necessarily the amount, but how you price. Right. Uh, I know that it's in um I'm use my, my world is more uh information technology implementation. So ERP implementations, maybe you, you must I'm sure you must have either seen them or you must have been called upon after them <laughs> for actually, actually I've been uh, because because of a big piece of what we do is change management. Yeah. Um, you know, uh I've implemented uh enterprise wide human resource systems and other ERP systems and been part of the change management team. Uh, that's helped uh, bring those into uh, to action. So ERPs we're very familiar with. Yeah. So there, there. Um, usually, the, the the consultant is billing his time, his or her, his or her time, because they are working for one year, two years on that uh, implementation. 
then the value that the, the added value for the organization that has the new system um, it's realized later but the, the consultant is not necessarily there anymore so for you in the way you could price your uh, services are you relating it to value or more on the the, the, the what you have executed wonderful question um one of the unique opportunities that I was given early on in my human resources career was um, creating the value proposition around human resources. So in these days, people are pretty familiar with how to get an ROI out of human resources. But back in the early 90s, late 90s, when I was getting into the space, it really wasn't part of the deal, especially around learning and development. So there were people like uh, uh, Kirkpatrick, and then you've got uh, Jack Phillips and Patty Phillips, and who I know very well, and uh, you know, Jack Fitzsens and Brinkenhoff, and there's these all these models around how do you measure the value that human resources and learning development? Because people say, yeah, learning is great, but what value is it going to give me down the road? You know, it's kind of like marketing as well. Marketing gets that same kind of wrap. And so you have to prove it. And so what we were able to do is, is, is determine the ROI of these, these things. And, 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 and it's there. And so we do what we, and we're known for this, is, is what we call organizational impact analysis. Mm-hmm. We're able to measure where the organization was at at the time when we first started intervent, uh, intervening and before that. So we make sure to collect data on that. And we immediately start collecting engagement data and helm data moving forward. And so it becomes a case study every time. And if the organization says, yeah, we want to be here, right? And it's going to, we're going to have to take these steps to get there. And this is where we're at right now. We're putting together a change plan to make that occur. And there's huge value in that. Uh, there's, you know, we're able to do an ROE, a return on engagement calculator. We're able to measure the impact that it has on turnover, uh, the measure that it has to increase performance. Uh, by the employees, what does it mean on the processes that they manage, the cost, the quality, uh, the reduction of defects, the satisfaction of those products and services, and uh, the utilization of it? What does it mean by uh, what's the impact going to be on the customer? I have examples where employees now, it's amazing the customer and the, and the community engagement that they have as a result of the programs they've gone through. And then ultimately, it's the results. It's ultimately the financial. Well, the reality is, is there's a lot of factors that go into that ultimate financial result. So you can't take full credit over it, right? But you are able to say, here's what the business was like before we started. Here's like, here's where it was at during the program, you know, and with implementation. And here's where it's at afterwards. And so, yes, there's all sorts of different factors. COVID, I mean, you can come up with a thousand different factors, but did we feel, are we experiencing uh, the benefit, and then ultimately is what is the value of that benefit, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I'm working with an organization, and they want to go from here to here to there. What's the value of that to you, and mm-hmm. what is it that you know what what is it that we're going to provide uh, based on that? So, because I've worked with so many vendors over the years, pricing for me has always been kind of easy. I'm not I'm not one to price based on time typically, um, but but you have to. And so we'll do half day, full day, but sometimes it's just the program rate. Um, sometimes it's a cost per employee, um, you know, or cost per participant, you know, so you get into different variations. But as an independent, as a consultant, you want to be diversified in how you price. Um, if I'm only selling my time, time is finite, <laughs> and, you know, and you've got to be on to then to be able to make money, right? And so we sell our time 
but we also sell our eight factors of engagement program, which just runs on a quarterly basis, right? We also sell um, our assessment tools. And that's something the client can do on their own. So we train the client to be able to do these things, to be able to run these. We're very much a teach them, you know, teach them how to fish type of uh, environment because I, I just can't be there working with all these folks all the time. So they're the ones that know. And that's the way we want it. We want them embracing what it is that we're doing. Obviously, we're looking at some subscription-based stuff with websites as well, how they can come into the website, how they can access different resources. So, um, but pricing is interesting. I will... I will admit, though, I, I do have a couple of my uh, peers who are, you know, again, they're, I don't want to call them competition, but they're partners, but, you know, they're in the same space that I am. And there's a couple of times when we're pricing for their client and, you know, I'm, I'm telling them, yeah, this is, you know, this is, you know, I'm trying to give them a nice modest price that they can work to, you know, put their margin on and everything else. They're like, no, no, Robert, we've got to price it here. Uh, both times they were like, no, you're, the value of this stuff is up here. And I'm like, all right, you know, and sure enough, they walk in, it sells right away. So, um, you know, I'm probably at fault of uh, underpricing a little bit, but I also do a lot of work with nonprofits and a lot of work with uh, county government. Um, and so I'm, I'm used to different pricing models and you have to, you have to, you have to scale it. You've got to adjust for the different organizations. You know, you get a small organization that, you know, doesn't have the cash flow, but it's funny, some of these mid-sized organizations, they're flush with cash and, you know, and they're wanting to have that impact and they're willing to spend what it takes to make it happen. So you kind of have to just, uh, you have to feel it out a little bit. So yeah, the pricing models do and will look different based upon the client. Uh, at least for me, it does. In other situations, you want to be incredibly consistent with the pricing and you don't want it to have different, different values in the market because it just confuses people. But the work we do, we're able to do that. Uh, amazing, amazing, uh, very, very good advice. Then uh, uh, your, your book, so Grab the Helm, Navigating with Purpose, uh, just makes me think uh, about the question, uh, uh, you, for you, maybe you have mentioned it uh, earlier, but uh, for you, what is your uh, your purpose? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. It's one I ask myself on a daily basis. And I, and I think more than anything else, that's really what it has come down to for me. Um, my purpose is, uh, you know, being in the moment, Uh, being very aware of the opportunities that are being presented to me on a daily basis to serve others. And in doing so, um, there are talents and gifts that I've been given uh, and that I have developed over the years um, that I know have significant uh, value and impact in others' lives. And if I'm not being mindful of the opportunity to give and to serve with those, then I'm underutilizing Uh, my talents, and I'm not, and I'm not doing the world, uh, the the uh, um, the service that I've been put here to do. And so, so for me, it's it's creating those aha moments for others. Uh, it's creating those uh, uh, situations of transformation. Um, when I was a when I was a teenager, um, I was looking at myself, and I was looking at other teenagers and wondering why were certain kids motivated to do stuff and certain ones weren't. That was a question I was asking myself then. And that's what brought me to recreational therapy. It's just like, I don't get it. I, I just, I don't get it. Right. And, um, and so that having that light bulb turn on a little bit, uh, you know, throughout the years and understand what drives folks and that what drives us is different. Each and every one of us is driven by something different and finding out what that is. And we even, we even have a really cool tool that lets you know, you know, what your drivers are, which is just amazing. And so, Um, creating those moments for others. And, and it is, it's, you know, we do transformation at an organizational level, at the team level, but 
true change happens at the individual level. So for me, it always goes back to, you know, creating those aha moments for others so that they're inspired and motivated to do whatever it is that they're put on earth to be able to do. Uh, wonderful. Um, a bit related uh, to the question, but it's more for the show. Uh, I mean, the, for the podcast. So uh, it's the name is Consulting Lifestyle. And I would like to know uh, for you, what does having a consulting lifestyle mean? Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's an interesting one because it does mean being on all the time, right? Uh, when you're a consultative lifestyle, you're, uh, that's, that's your calling. You're a consultant. You're, you're here to consult and to help and to aid others and to make their lives better in whatever way in which you, you happen to do it. So for me, um, I'm on quite a bit, um, but it does give immense flexibility then. You know, it gives uh, incredible flexibility to, 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 I think, to pursue your passions um, in ways that you weren't able to do before. One of the models that we work with is the TOPS model. Um, it's, it, it's out there. It's, it's one we created for ourselves, um, but I know other folks use a similar variation to it. But it looks at what are the talents that you've been given? What are the gifts that you have? Um, what are the passions that you have, right, that you really love to do? And then where are the opportunities to use those? So There are things that we have to do that we have talent for, but we don't have no passion for it. We call that duty and obligation. And what I find is that when we're working in a corporate space or a business, there's a lot of that duty obligation stuff that we have to do, right? Um, but when we're able to combine our passion, our, our, our talent and the opportunity, then we're in that sweet spot. And so, and then, and then are we developing uh, talent in those areas that we have passion for and opportunity, but we may not just be good at it. So, Um, the consulting lifestyle really is a way, I believe, of really going after and, and, and finding out those things that you're passionate about, whether or not those translate into purpose. And that's an important piece because passion is the wind in your sails, okay? But if you let the wind blow all over the place, it's going to knock you around. It's going it, to, you know, if you don't set your sails the right way and whatnot, purpose is the rudder. Purpose is what steers the ship in the direction that you're headed in. And so you've got to have the combination of the two, right? You've got to have wind, which is going to drive you, but you also have to be steering it the right way and you have to have trim your sails the right way. You don't want to go after everything you're passionate about. You've got to get focused on those two or three things, as I mentioned before, and that's what's going to really propel you in a direction. And some of the other stuff can happen as well. So it really is that, but that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's, that's where you got to catch yourself again with, with the consulting lifestyle. You have to be willing to hand off those things that are duty and obligation that aren't passions for you, right? One of the things that I've been having to hand off for the longest time, and I've been in business for 12 years now, I got to hand off bookkeeping, right? I got to, you'd think I would have done that, right? But it's one of those things that I have partially handed it off at different times, but I just need it to be gone, right? Um, I need to hand off, you know, survey administration. So I've got a guy who does that really, really, really well. He doesn't let anything fall through the cracks. I mean, um, marketing, I got to have somebody else do marketing. I mean, there's things that I'm not, I'm not put on the earth to do, right? And so if you can find out that crew that can help you with those things, but we, it frees you up then to do what you're passionate about. As long as that passion is aligned with a, 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 a good purpose, right? Or a great purpose. Um, that's what it really, that, that's what the consulting lifestyle does, uh, for you. Um, excellent. and that's what I encourage folks to, to go after. Excellent. Excellent answer and excellent interview. It was really, really, really interesting. Uh, the last thing is, uh, uh where can uh, people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Well, there's, um, three different things. If you're just typing it into Google, if you type in Sakura consulting, 
And Sakura is spelled S as in Sam, I-C-O-R-A, Sakura Consulting. Um, if you're thinking about the helm, uh, it is called Leading from the Helm is the helm. If you type Leading from the Helm into Google, that's going to bring you to our main website. If you type in Grab the Helm, there is a secondary website for Grab the Helm that's being developed. So please be patient with us, be forgiving. Um, uh, send us a note of, uh, of advice if you want. Uh, but the Grab the Helm site, we're building out uh, and getting it ready for our next cohort, uh, which is going to happen sometime in February. So right around the time uh, that the, this podcast, I think, is going to go live. Um, but we're going to have um, open cohorts happening uh, on a quarterly basis. And we want a resource and a website that people can go to around the book uh, and be able to expand their uh, the exercises and the activities and their knowledge around how to apply uh, the Grab the Helm books. So those are the three big ones. And of course, if you're if you're looking at engagement, um, the eight factors of engagement is the model that we use there. And that if you search on that, that'll come up as well. Ah, that's perfect. I'm gonna put all the all the links in the in the show notes as well, so uh, people can find that. And uh, it was it was really wonderful, uh, Robert. Uh, indeed, the episode. I hope that the episode will be released uh, after the website is uh, uh, complete. But anyway, if it is in uh, February, it will uh, only be a matter of days for anyone that listens. Yeah. So, uh, thank you very much, uh, Robert. And uh, we uh, keep in touch. We we talk soon. Grateful for the time. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Consulting Lifestyle Podcast. Leave a review on iTunes if you have enjoyed the episode and subscribe to the podcast so that you get notified to hear other episodes with your host, Diogène Tirandekoura.